Welcome, and thanks for joining us. This is the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, bad, and ugly, where we break down the complexities of billing and coding in healthcare and discuss how to operate and hopefully excel in an industry imposed with complex and ever-changing regulations. Here are your hosts, our authority on compliance, Ross Ronan, and coding experts, Neil Green and Mark Babst. Welcome to the Coding Compliance Podcast, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mark and Neil, how are you doing today? Doing well, thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I think today we're going to talk a little bit about, in my opinion, one of the most crucial and uh, critical aspects of a compliance program, as, as evidenced by the seven elements of a, of a compliance program, monitoring and auditing. auditing sorry. Um, and, and how do we craft that compliance plan, whether it's a policy, a process, a procedure. Um, and, and in most compliance world, especially in the healthcare industry, we look for detection, mitigation, and prevention. And that's really what we're going to hit uh, on all these aspects today of these compliance auditing plans is trying to figure out how you actually do the audit, what do you do to fix things that you discover? And then finally, um, how, do you, how do you prevent those issues from happening in the future? So, so let's just kick it off and, and talk a little bit about why we need an auditing plan. Um, what, are, what are the number one aspects that, that we should be looking for in an a auditing program? Well, I think there's a twofold. One uh, aspect of compliance is always trying to find out what sort of risk you're creating um, by your coding efforts. And the second is something that I know that physicians seem to be very, very interested in, which is the optimization of their revenue streams. And I think one of the things that are most overlooked by large organizations in particular is there's sort of a, a, a picture of if you are going to expend compliance dollars, they don't really have a return, but in fact they do. They have double return. They have a return that protects you from the uh, opportunity to, to have recoupment from bad coding policies and secondarily to truly identify how you can legitimately and legally optimize revenue. I also think uh, that um, by, by reviewing the, the documentation uh, and looking for deficiencies in the, do the medical records um, that can be spotted by a coder, that you end up uh, improving that patient's long-term quality of care because items can be picked up uh, and, and changed to uh, if they were wrong or if they were absent from the medical record. So um, uh, there is that element of, uh, uh, of documentation uh, uh, for the quality of care. 
And the government really looks at it as accuracy, right? It's not just um, up or down, you know, overcoating or undercoating revenue opportunities or compliance risks. It's right. being correct, right? Um, you know, unfortunately, you don't get the opportunity if you do it wrong and undercoat. <laughs> Very rarely do you have a chance to go back and, and get get additional money, but always you're you are refunding. Um, <clears throat> and on the other side of it. Uh, you know, the ob the object from a compliance perspective is you can't put your head in the sand, right? You you can't just, just wish things away and hope things go very well um, without taking a look at, at what's happening and picking up rocks and making sure that your coding efforts and your, your processes are correct. Um, when you talk about educational remediation and opportunities, is it education opportunities on the provider documentation side? Is it on the billing side or the coding side? Or is it just everything in general that, that really comes out of these audits? Well, I think if you look at the, uh, uh, going back to the primary tenant of why, the first and foremost part, you're trying to look at documentation. Um, you always need to look at documentation uh, simultaneously to how the claim went out the door. So it would be foolish and a waste of time not to see whether or not the claim also had a problem with it in terms of the material that's put down on the claim form. So while you are looking to make sure that your coding is primarily the number one issue involved, uh, there are lots of things that you can pick up derivatively um, that tie into directly to that. Uh, certainly the use of modifiers, which is uh, really designed to be a billing uh, adjunct to uh, coding efforts are critical and it's a coding component, uh, but you also will find things like place of service and issues like that that are related that may end up being discovered as an incorrect place of service or something along those lines. And I, I do see a lot of modifiers and um, you know, different issues coming out. That, those really are playing a lot more into the, the role of denials, right? Not getting paid for the services that you're rendered. Um, and, and, and having that type of result is, is very uh, informational from a billing, coding, and uh, recovery or reimbursement standpoint. Let's talk a little bit more about setting accuracy standards. Um, when we talk about what does it mean to be correct? What does it mean to be accurate in the coding um, and billing world? What are the expectations that you all see when you're doing audits for yourself or third parties? What are those thresholds that you're looking for? And, and for everybody who, who's listening, how would they set their thresholds? Uh, lots of times it could be a business decision, but there's also a threshold of, of compliance risk, right? So when you talk about it and those accuracy, accuracy standards, Mark, what are you looking for from the perspective of um, expectations of, of an organization? Well, um, the, the industry standard appears to be 90% accuracy, but that, that requires some level of interpretation. Um, because, um, uh, as Neil can certainly confirm, we have seen some um, uh, methods of, uh, of using this 90% that mathematically you can't get to. Um, uh, so so it's, it's, 
it's got to be um, a system that it works for the practice. Um, uh, it has to be able to be mathematically attained. And it has, what we look for is whether the claim was accurate, uh, whether the claim, uh, and, and, we, and you have to look at the whole claim. Um, there could be one line on uh, the claim where multiple services are provided uh, at, that invalidates the entire claim. So um, uh, we look at we generally look at accuracy, and I like to tell our clients to um, use the, uh, the the old times school uh, A B C uh, ninety to a hundred is a is an A. Um, uh, 80 to 90 is a B, uh, 70 to 80 is a C, uh, and and uh, for for measuring, and um, and then turn that into what I call the good, the bad, and the ugly, which would be the uh, the, the people who are getting the A's are the good. Uh, they can um, uh, be allowed to continue to code. Um, as they're doing, uh, the the uh, bad are those in the B range, um, where they're scoring um, uh, up to 89% accurately, and uh, you you want to bring them up. They they might just need a little bit of education on in terms of modifiers or uh, or unbundling so they can understand it better, um, and. and then the ugly are the people who are putting the practice in jeopardy uh, from a, an, a, an audit perspective. And those uh, doctors or coders should not be allowed to code until they can prove through a subsequent audit that they have corrected their evil ways and are now in the uh, high 80s to actually uh, over 90 percent, um, and it, uh, the, the the good ones, the the people in the good category, can be audited less frequently, perhaps, because they they they've shown to be good. They could be audited uh, with smaller samples. They could be rewarded in some ways. Um, the bad again have to learn. And the ugly should have their coding pencils taken away and, and not be allowed to jeopardize the entire practice. And just sort of to embellish upon that, Ross, I think that uh, there are lots and lots of uh, different scoring systems out there. Right. And um, I think one of the things Mark was alluding to is statistically, you know, how do you get to that 90%? And the other component is how are you, creating your grading scale. And I, I just want to say that, um, you know, you have to look at what the, uh, I always want to eliminate risk first and then uh, to be able to, uh, you know, work on the revenue portion second because risk gets you into a lot more trouble a lot faster. And so I, <coughs> that for that point, I like scoring systems that give primacy to the CPT codes um, for those that are involved in professional coding uh, services. And <clears throat> I've seen systems where there's given equal weight 
to um, a diagnostic code. And I'm, I think it's very important to be as accurate as you can. In today's world, um, the primacy of risk uh, for all specialties is CPT. And that is not to say that there aren't specialties that come into play that are more diagnostically sensitive than others, that you have to be very careful with a diagnostic code and, is, and be very, very particular. Um, but I think, again, if you build your coding compliance plan from a risk reduction standpoint, you will want to build a system based upon CPT accuracy. And uh, I, I want to add to that. Um, uh, Neil and I have um, come across a, a number of different audit vendors, one uh, major one in particular, and they, um, in auditing ENM, would uh, give a half point demerit or take away a, a point or half a point if you upcoded it one level. Um, so if you were, if they were auditing 10, uh, 10, uh, ENM encounters and if all 10 of them were upcoded one level using that, their, their structure, that, that, uh, doctor or coder would have gotten a 95% or excuse me, a 90% accuracy rate when in fact, Every one of those ten claims are wrong, so you have to um, you, you have to be aware of uh, uh, of the as Neil said the importance of CPT codes, and you have to look at whether the claim uh, is creating jeopardy for you or is leaving money on the table. A couple of great points there that I'd, I'd like to interject as well. Um, I'm so glad you brought up not all codes are created equal. Um, and and I, I have this conversation with a lot of my clients and agree with you 100% that, you know, CPT is, is, is a driving factor on reimbursement, whether it's over or under loss of re revenue or risk factors. And, um, you know, they, they do, they should have a higher weight in certain, especially in the fee-for-service realm these days, right? When we start getting into value-based reimbursement or Medicare Advantage, we're talking about risk levels and things like that. It, it changes a little bit when you talk about diagnostics, but CPT codes really do in this world today drive the reimbursement. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. The thing that we do on our side as well from a compliance program standpoint is we do dovetailing into what you just said, Mark, we really do try to look at those CPT codes that are the highly utilized codes by a practice, um, whether it's, you know, a physician practice, a dental practice, a, you know, a hospice or a home health, whatever it may be, there's highly utilized codes that each one of these organizations use every day. And if you look at it, 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 it can represent four or five codes can represent 90% of their revenue, especially from a governmental perspective. And what we generally see is, is when 
third parties come in and do audits and there's not a clear structure for an auditing plan, they'll essentially throw all the codes together, do a sampling, a statistical sampling, and then say, oh, you have this huge error rate on, on a code that you maybe use a hundred times a year when your volume's a million, right? Um, and so we do see a lot of that and really having a program and a plan in place to say, Let's figure out what you're utilizing the most. Let's figure out what your risk areas are, both up and down, right? Um, and, and put that in there to be able to determine which ones we're looking at so that when you actually do get a report, it means something of value. Um, additionally, I've seen a lot of people put in their, in their auditing plan a netting out effect. And you know you had half high, half low. Therefore, your error rate zero, right? Um, and 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 that's just an in a inappropriate way to look at it from a compliance perspective. Um, it's it's sometimes that's okay when you talk about a financial risk in a in a in a Sarbanes and and financial review. But but from a compliance perspective, you just you don't get to net them out. And and if you go to any carrier or any Mac that you're refunding money with, they'll tell you number one thing that you don't look for is you don't net out. You don't get to take off your your overcoating um, by how much you undercoated. It doesn't work that way. Uh, and then the final thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about was the accuracy percentage. Um, in our practice and setting up compliance programs, we've used a 95% accuracy rate. Um, and that's what we've always, uh, the, the company has strived for. And um, that's because, in my opinion, anything less than 5% is human error. I mean, it's just very hard to get to a point where someone cannot make a 5% error rate less than that. And additionally, I've worked on a number of corporate integrity agreements over, over the years that I've, I've been in compliance. And over the many years, they've changed their, their, their um, IRO requirements where they do a discovery sample and then if it goes over 95%, that opens it up or if it goes, you know, error rates greater than 5%, it opens up the whole universe to a bigger, a bigger, broader perspective. So we've always used that in the standpoint of um, trying to make sure that, that we are, uh, you know, complying with what the good accuracy rates are. Uh, any comments or feedbacks on any of those? I, I would say that I, I think both of you have uh, articulated where the vast majority of plans that we see today written in, either large health organizations or groups have fall. Uh, I rarely see anything above 95% because I think it's pretty unrealistic to believe that people are going to be perfect. And, uh, and usually the floors are set at 90. I think that it's really, really important though, to keep in mind what you said, Ross, is that the greater the error rate uh, and the more elasticity in that error rate, um, because I've seen organizations say they have a 90 or 95%, and then all of a sudden they set up some program. And for that program, that uh, the original target, 90 or 95%, uh, is not being utilized. And when that happens, you literally undermine your entire integrity of your, of your compliance plan. So I think people need to be very careful. Uh, when you do that, if you have a vendor, if you have internal coders, uh, if you add new programs, if you do whatever you're doing, that standard needs to be applied universally. And I think that is essential. 
I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, typically when we do an E&M audit, um, we'll not only look at it in their top five risk area codes, we'll actually drill down into every single code that may produce an error rate. Because as you all know, when the government does come in and take a look, whether it's CMS, the OIG, DOJ, they will actually look at it code by code and utilization by utilization, not not all of your codes in general. So we will actually drill down. And I think that's very important from a, from a compliance auditing plan as well, making sure that that you drill down into to the effects. And we're getting into the, the remediation aspects of it, but before we get there, how often would you guys wanna do an audit? And what would you recommend? Well, I, uh, this is Mark, I, I usually suggest that, um, what, what that a, a client uh, budget an amount for the year for external audits and then divide it by four and do it quarterly um, so that there's not a long, a, a whole year between uh, uh, feedback uh, sessions from the audit results. Uh, it, uh, it gives the, the, the coders or the doctors who do their own coding the opportunity to uh, learn on an ongoing basis. And, it's, and it then becomes part of uh, their, the office's standard operating procedures uh, if it's done uh, on a quarterly basis. Earlier, I mentioned that if a, uh, a coder or a doctor scores in the highest level, the 90, 95% level, they, they might be done less frequently, um, but it still needs to be done uh, uh, on a regular basis. Um, the OIG suggests annually, once a year, and um, I think that's too long to wait between audits. There, there's too much time, um, and uh, it's too easy to for a coder or a doctor to uh, uh, sort of fall back into their old and devious or evil ways. Um, un unintentionally, of course, but it just, you know, we're all human. Yeah, so to, to build on that a little bit, uh, so last year, the Department of Justice, which provides the guidance to CMS and OIG on what to look for, and first of all, established a couple of really basic principles that are essential. One is that you have to have a written coding compliance plan and demonstrate that you're doing due diligence on your coding if you're submitting claims to Medicare, Medicaid, or Shampoo's. And so for a lot of groups, this was an eye-opener. And as Mark pointed out, that guidance also um, referred to the fact that this should be done at least annually. We had clients that were doing stuff every other year, um, <clears throat> so they were clearly no longer in compliance with the, the guidance that was coming out of the DOJ. Um, and as we finish the broadcast today, this will <clears throat> tie into other elements uh, that they ended up uh, uh, illuminating in their guidance. And so uh, I, I don't think it's ever become as crystal clear as it is now. And so groups that ignore that guidance do so at their own peril at a level that has never before been seen. And so, um, you know, I think that if you set this standard of being able to do audits on an annual basis, then there are other elements that come into play regarding remediation 
that you're also going to have to budget for at the same time because you can't uh, throw um, one part out without the other because you could literally invalidate your plan by doing that. So um, <clears throat> with that said, um, I think Mark's standard of if you use that as a very minimum and then provide the other elements around it, you should be in pretty good shape. I'm glad you guys brought that up because when you look back at the U.S. Federal Sentencing Guidelines and the OIG guidance related to compliance programs, the auditing and monitoring section of that was routine, right? Routine audits. You know, it's a very nebulous type of discussion of what that actually is. And, and with the new DOJ guidance, they really do operationalize it and say it's got to be something, subs it's got to be a living, breathing thing. You have to do something with it, right? And I totally agree with you. And just to add on to your comments, Mark, you know, typically when we set up compliance programs, we look at the highly utilized billing companies, whether it's internal codes, coders, or, or outside vendors that we're using. And we say, okay, so if you do a high volume of this, uh, of this business for this organization, or this, this is your high volume codes, generally we set in a quarterly audit schedule. And that quarterly audit schedule we put in front of our executive compliance committee and our board, and we say, this is what we're gonna do, and if anybody wants to change it, they can. Um, and then also, we look at it on a quarterly basis to say, like you said, if you're better, maybe you back it up to two, twice a year, right? Or if something happens and an error rate spikes because you have a, a you know, errant coder or somebody who just didn't understand the rules or they were new, then you could do a focus and probe review that next quarter to make sure that you're remedying the situation. So um, when you do create the auditing plan, at least from what we do, we set this, this process in place to make sure that it morphs and it transforms into what you need to prevent risk and exposure. And I 100% agree that it's much easier to do an audit every quarter and remediate one quarter's worth of exposure than going back to an entire year trying to figure out where it went wrong, how it went wrong, and the fact that you didn't know about it for the last 12 months. Absolutely. And, you know, as you were speaking, Ross, I, I was thinking, uh, because many of our clients uh, are academic faculty practices, every July, there's new doctors coming in, there's new fellows and residents coming in, all of whom uh, uh, do some documentation. Uh, and there are special requirements for teaching physicians that in the chart and we've just seen um, uh, some really nasty penalties go because the, the 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 teaching physician attestations weren't made by probably new doctors or, or new faculty members or new residents or new fellows so there, it's more than just coding and 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 a quarterly audit as you say will pick it up pretty pretty promptly and allow for a much more immediate resolution. And, uh, and then you can, if, if you're audited, you can say, look, we fixed it. The problem is fixed. It's gone away. And you can show that, demonstrate that by your subsequent audits. So, uh, so the, so the, in, the, the nasty part of the OIG, which happens when they find the intent to submit fraudulent or uh, 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 claims, that goes away when you can say that we found it and we've cured it. 
Yeah, I, I think the, the one last point I'd like to make about this is that once you set the plan and you actually commit it to writing, <clears throat> it is essential you actually do it. So, you, you know, the fact that you have it in writing, put it on a shelf somewhere, um, <clears throat> I, I can tell you uh, doesn't really mean anything. And so if you do set it, I, I just want to give you an array of excuses I've heard in 2020 that would not fly with any government organization. One, COVID hit and our budget got decimated. That doesn't mean anything to the federal government. Two, um, we just don't have enough people in compliance to get through everything we need to get through. Um, so <clears throat> if you need to adjust your budget to make it fit your plan, it better fit your plan and you better f make sure your staffing fits it. And the most important thing is you do it consistently without excuses. And if you need to get help, there's lots of places you can get help. And the government is really looking at the federal health care program right now just to make sure that they, they do have enough money and, and that things are not being um they're, they're not being defrauded against so there's a lot of activity in the oig and if you read through their their linkedin pages and i would, I would encourage anybody who's in compliance or encoding to follow the the oig's linkedin pages because they have some great information about what they're looking at as well as their work plans and, and you're absolutely right this is you know the pandemic doesn't stop doesn't stop uh, uh fraudulent behavior and, and you don't get a free pass on that one for sure when we talk about um, like remediation, so we have these audit results, they come through, we say you're, you're less than 90% accurate, or I don't know how you look at that, you have a greater than 10% error rate. Um, this, remedi this remediation plan, which is very, very important from the standpoint of detection, mitigation, and, and prevention, right, the, the, the mitigation pieces of it, who gets this remediation? Who who gets the information to be able to say how do I create correct these issues that are happening? And and literally, what is the process that you would recommend for setting up remediation under the audit plan? Oh, at a bare minimum, I think you want to make sure that the providers get to see what they got wrong and then try to explain it to them, whether that's being explained by somebody on the on-site compliance plan or somebody who did the audit, it doesn't really matter, as long as the information is being passed along correctly. And then if there are coders that are separate from the providers that are doing the coding, they have to be brought into the discussion to be able to fix what they're doing wrong. So some aspects will be related to documentation, whether the doctor is coding or not, and if that, in fact, is the case, and that individual needs to be brought in, some practices these days use scribes. So if the scribe is documenting for a physician, um, <clears throat> even though the physician has to sign off on it, you want to make sure that the scribe understands <clears throat> what uh, he or she may be doing wrong in, the do in that documentation of documenting the doctor's services. So. Uh, there's a variety of people that need to be brought into the circle to make sure that the error gets uh, fixed. But as Mark alluded to before, um, at the end of the day, however that's done, 
or whether it's accompanied by formal training sessions as well, um, you must have a way of validating now that uh, the provider, coder, whomever is involved in the process actually got it and the behavior has been corrected because I think of all the things I see most often as the most common mistake is the fact that practices um, don't validate that the, that the remediation took. And that is a essential element of what the uh, DOJ guidance is looking for now. I often find that um, sometimes people audit too fast, right? So they do an audit in a quarter. It takes a little bit of time to do the remediation, but then they audit really fast where none of the remediation aspects take place. And then you're just re-auditing what you audited before and it becomes a, a fruitless situation, right? So so timing of this remediation is really important. How often do you get your 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 findings back and then when do you do it, right? And then then when do you follow up on that accuracy level um, or how that remediation took? And And to Mark's point, quarterly audits will help that along. Sometimes they become a little bit too fast, but you can do it somewhere within that quarter too. But I, I would recommend also that, that that auditing plan takes into account timing of remediation. Um, and, and when you do get audit results, I generally look at them from the standpoint of coding errors, right? So it's either up or down. But there's two facets to it, in my opinion. It's the coder just missed it and they did it wrong. Or there's a, an education for you know, how to, to uh, code a claim. And then on the opposite side of it is really the coder did it right. And, um, but there is some education and training that could come out of it from the provider standpoint so that they can fix it. Maybe it did support a higher level or maybe it was a critical care code, but you didn't really ask for it. So any, any advice on the remediation for documentation for providers? I think that's really a lost, um, a lost aspect of an auditing plan where, where a, a compliance program or a, a, a company can provide that beneficial feedback of potentially areas of, of lack of documentation. So any comments on, on the provider documentation side? Um, well, um, my, 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 my comment on uh, the documentation for feedback um, is that it's gotta be readable. It's got, it's got to make uh, sense to that doctor, that specialty. Um, it, so, um, uh, and uh, we've seen a lot of uh, auditing companies turn out volumes of, uh, of charts and graphs and uh, uh, all of which just is, is uh, um, wallpapers the room and it doesn't have the kind of direct meaning that a busy doctor or a harassed coder needs so it's got to be specialty specific uh, and it's got to address the problem it's got to say this is what you did wrong here's what you need to do right uh, so it, it, it just the readability is important the pictures aren't and the graphs aren't in my mind, Neil. I don't and, know you... and so to to build a little bit on what Mark's talking about, uh, he alluded to uh, 
subspecialty education. So, you know, oftentimes in an integrated uh, healthcare system, when you're busy doing auditing, you may have 30, 40 or more specialties involved. And so, you you know, you have to have both uh, the depth of resources available to you to be able to give you the sort of information you need and to be able to build programs that can do that. Now, there, there are organizations that can provide that to you so you don't have to build everything in-house. But what is not okay in my mind is to just dumb down everything to a generic level so that uh, you can say, you know, here's basic talking points. Well, usually if you can't get down to a subspecialty level to be able to speak the same language as the provider or a coder that's trying to focus on that specialty, you're going to have great level of, of communication issues going on where you really are having problems solving what you're trying to solve. And, and, and to further add to what Neil just said, we often see these big health systems um, have uh, compliance offices of two or three maybe four people, you know, um, one is the director, one is a, a clerical, and maybe there's two or three, two auditors or so. And they're expected to know 30, 35, 40 different specialties and subspecialties and to, to audit that. And that's just not realistic. Um, I, what we've found is a much more realistic approach is to use those, uh, those people who understand coding as educators so that they can bring the um, subspecialty specific findings to the doctors or their coders and educate them on what they did wrong and how to make it right. Uh, but two people, three people, five people can't possibly know all of the uh, coding specific requirements and the uh, 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 and the procedures, the medications involved with uh, all of the various specialties. It's just it's just more than one person can manage. And I I, I can't agree with you more. And oftentimes I do see a lot of corporations and, and companies and practices. The compliance, you you go fix this, go do the education and training for these providers, whether they're doctors or they're coders. Um, you know, th the experts in the world are not necessarily the compliance folks, right? We understand the rules, we understand the regulations, we understand what you can and can't do. And we'll say, yes, don't do this or yes, do this. But when we're trying to lead remediation and education, and what we're really trying to do here from an auditing plan standpoint is just to be better. It's to not have risk within the organization and to be as accurate as we possibly can. That means that people who have the experience and the expertise are the ones who should be educating and, and leading that remediation, right? And nine times out of 10, it's not the compliance program. We're more oversight. We, <laughs> we, 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 like to, we like to say, yes, we're checks and balances, right? We're not the experts in everything. And, and if any compliance program says that, then they're, probably fooling themselves. Um, so, so, so 
the remediation on, on who leads that I totally agree. It has to be someone in the expertise. And then, you know, that post education auditing plan really has to be articulated and, and everybody really has to understand exactly what that means from that perspective. Um, any, any kind of final words as we, as we took this all the way through, you know, detection, mitigation and prevention, um, and the good and the bad and the ugly of all of it, any, any last words, any follow up, uh, uh comments? I think the only thing I'd just like to say in summation is, uh, the pieces of the puzzle that we've gone through today on compliance are the things that really um, are the greatest vulnerabilities to the groups that we deal with all the time. Um, that there's some part of this, typically in almost every client we have, where there's been something that we've had to tweak for them in order to get aligned with what the current guidance is. And so if you're sitting there and you've listened to this podcast and you think that there's something that you're not doing that we've talked about today, it'd probably be a really good idea to dust off your plan and do something to it. Agreed. Well, guys, really thank you for your time today. I think this was great information and, um, uh, you know, we'll look forward to, to the next, uh, to next podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the coding compliance podcast, the good, bad, and ugly sponsored by Ronan healthcare consultants and the coding network with our hosts, Ross Ronan, Neil Green, and Mark Babs. Please tune into iTunes and Spotify on the first Friday of each month for a new episode. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our podcast website or leave us a review.